Welcome back to Design for Disruption. Today, we're talking about public health, a field that has, of course, been at the forefront of so much of our public discourse during the pandemic. How has the sector changed over the past year to meet this moment? And what communication challenges are public health officials facing, both related to COVID and more broadly? In this episode, the Hairpin team talks to Stacy King. She's the director of field practice at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and she leads their academic public health volunteer corps. It was started last March in response to COVID and mobilizes students and alum to support local public health departments around data collection, contact tracing, and health communication. Prior to that, she worked for the Cambridge Public Health Department, where she led their marketing and communication efforts. My name is Kristen Hughes, and I am a co-founder and creative director at Hairpin. I'm Sean. I am a communication strategist and a partner with Hairpin. I'm Craig Bida, a partner and a brand strategist at Hairpin. Hi, I'm Erin Bloom. I'm the director of success at Hairpin. Hi, my name is Stacy King, and I am director of practice at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And I had the privilege of working with Stacy for a number of years at the Cambridge Public Health Department. And when I think of Stacy, I think of this real opportunity to speak with somebody who's at the intersection of local public health, communications and marketing, community engagement, creativity, health equity, all these things. So thanks for being with us, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. So maybe we can start by talking a little bit about your background. Tell us how you got to be where you are today. Where I am now, I'm director of practice at the Harvard Chan School, which is the School of Public Health at Harvard. Before that, I worked with you, Erin, at the Cambridge Public Health Department, and I did not know that I would be going into public health um, at that time in my career. I don't think I even knew what public health was in my 20s, to be perfectly honest. So I did a lot of different things after graduation. I taught English in Japan. I traveled, had a business with my sister. We had an import company. We did all kinds of things. I, I was in the safari business for six years. <laughs> I did a lot of different things and, you know, worried my parents, I'm sure, quite a bit. And I decided to figure out what my long-term mission and career focus might be. And so I ended up going back for my master's at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. I, I loved the science and I, I loved all the discovery of it, but research was too slow for me to do directly. And I had all these other skills and experiences from before, including marketing and sales and education and small business and some art in my background too. So there were a lot of different aspects of my work and I ended up, I stepped out of nutrition directly and went to work for the Cambridge Public Health Department. And it just seemed to be a great fit in a health promotion, um, healthy eating and physical activity promotion. The position was very wide open at the time. And so I basically shaped it around communications and a communication strategy. And I, I don't think I really realized that that's what I was doing. It was just kind of a natural thing to do. And the reason that that marketing position came about was that I was asked to write a proposal for that position because the health department kind of recognized how important communications is and how important social marketing is and, um, and we needed to be doing it. And so that is how that part of the work came about. 
you had an understanding about the importance of communication, the importance of marketing and changing behaviors. Can you talk about some of the campaigns and the learning along the way? Yeah, definitely. One of the first campaigns that I was involved with that I think was most concrete was around physical activity promotion. And we started a program called Fitness Buddies. We approached it through a social connectedness avenue because that's how a lot of people change their behavior. It's funny because a lot of it was just making it up as we go and who you talk with and what seems to work, but it was, it was very successful. What we did was we put together these gift cards so people could invite their friends and they could give each other these gift cards to invite them to become a fitness buddy with them. And we offered some programming. A lot of people really wanted these cards and they would say, can I have five? Can I have 10? And they somehow really responded to that they could be an agent of health and that they could also be a leader within their social circle. The power of the small network was very interesting to me at the time. And I think that informed some of the work going forward, understanding that the personal connection and the personal touch were what really resonate with a lot of people. So I think that that was a very formative effort. Yeah. And then as I was thinking about your time as the marketing manager there and the person really responsible for communications, I was thinking about H1N1. And so you were at the health department during that time. And I'm curious if there were any lessons learned along the way that you have since thought about in the context of COVID. What was that time like for you? Do you have any kind of war stories from the ground? I guess I have two stories. I have one where I was pretty sure I was going to get fired. We were doing these emergency preparedness drills, like emergency preparedness was a big thing. And it's less so right now. You just don't see as much of it right now. But at the time, we had to do these large-scale drills. We had to do a drill around mass dispensing site. So the department decided that we should join it with a flu campaign. And we should actually do something, not just make it a drill, but you know, make it a flu clinic. And normally the flu clinics were like 150 people or 200 people for a big one or something like that. And so we would all get around the conference room and they would say, well, how many people should we have at this mass dispensing site drill? And, you know, and somebody said, we should have a thousand people. You know, I was like, am I supposed to be the person that gets a thousand people to this event? And so it was very, it was very alarming to me because I was marketing and outreach. So I had a lot of those connections to the community. And so what I did was went out to the schools. We did a lot of partnership work across the city. At the time, the CDC recommendations for flu had changed. They were recommending flu vaccine for children ages two and older. And that was like a huge, huge change. We just really pushed that new CDC recommendation to an older and families really pay attention to that stuff. So that was actually the the big message to bring out the numbers for that event. These big drills are are huge. You know, there's the fire departments there, the police are there, we have nurses, you know, a hundred staff on site to operate the thing. So it was really terrifying because you you do everything you can and then you wait and you see what happens. You know, I was feeling like I was gonna sick that morning, but we had 1,300 people who came. And I was like, okay, 
<laughs> I think I still have a job, so that's good. But it was a wonderful outreach effort because it was partially about education around the new CDC recommendations, but it was also a big engagement effort around providing these toolkits for all these partners because we can't do it ourselves. That's the big message always, I think, in public health is we can't do it ourselves. So those partnerships were, were really important. And the other thing when you were talking about H1N1 in particular was I do remember the actual events at Cambridge Hospital, for example, when the vaccine was finally available, there was a line around the block. You know, how do you manage that? And the thing that I remember the most about that was actually walking up and down the line, like all around the block and talking to people because they're standing outside. They have no idea what's going on. They have no idea if it's going to move. They just don't know what's going to happen and they need information. So that was one of the big recollections from that was just how important it is for people to know what's going on. It's very reassuring for them. Please have a question for you, given your perch within the public health arena. Could you talk about the, the now and the impact of COVID and the experience we've been in on, on the field. A lot of your work, it seems like currently is around mobilizing people to participate maybe in new ways. Are we in the midst of a burst of energy around public health from young people or people in their careers who are who want to be part of this thing that we're going through and helping prepare for what's next? Or, or am, I, am I dreaming? No, I think that's, that's exactly what's happened. And we saw it last year, the state was shut down. And I work at a university and students are studying public health. Like that is what they are there to do. Students were saying, what can I do? Where can I plug in? And a lot of students organized at that time and they reached out to university health services, for example, I'm just using like one example. Um, and they, you know, they found 200 students just, just in our school alone to say like, how can we help the situation at our university? And then at the exact same time, the command center for the state also reached out to the universities through this academic health department structure that we had that was very new. Nothing was really organized at that time. So we partnered with the Mass Public Health Association and the Mass Health Officers Association the Mass Public Health Association put out a call to students. And within two weeks, we had 2,000 students sign up to volunteer. Just this outpouring from Massachusetts public health students. We saw, I mean, just locally, a ton of instant workforce, essentially. You know, I think it's the nature of public health students. They're very, very mission-driven. And we saw incredible leadership emerge from students in organizing these volunteers and reaching out to health departments and figuring out what they needed. And a lot of the work over time ended up being around health communications. This is like the moment for public health. You know, everyone knows what it is all of a sudden. So they want to be part of it. Along those lines, a lot of us, a lot of fields, sectors are considering how this past year is gonna shape our world going forward. Public health has got to be among those. I have to imagine that this past year means public health is going to look a little different. How are places like Harvard preparing students for that? I think that from the education side, everyone has been in kind of reaction mode and handling what it means to work virtually and teach virtually. And I think we're only just coming into that point 
where we need to be reflecting and saying, what are the changes that we need to see in our education to meet these new needs? Communications emerges just all the time as an incredible need and skill, like employers need it and public health professionals need it. And I think that in a lot of circumstances, it's kind of seen as an extra or a specialization, or it's put in a, a box next to other things, but communications is really a fundamental. Everyone who's trained in public health needs to be trained as a communicator. So it's hard to say what that is going to look like, you know, in terms of how it's going to influence curriculum development. You know, just to give an example, this week was the annual meeting of ours our professional association and Anthony Fauci was given an award. One of the things that he said is that everybody needs to become an excellent communicator. But that is what is needed right now. Public health professionals need to know how to talk and communicate when they are speaking with politicians. They need to be able to communicate differently when they are speaking with medical professionals. They need to have those skills when they are talking with the community or listening to the community. And I would argue that one of the biggest skills that our students all need is actually how to listen. I would love to see listening being built into all of our student development because I really think that that is what makes a good public health practitioner excellent. Yeah, you know, Stacey mentioned a little bit about communications being an extra in public health. And I think it wasn't until pretty recently that even the concept of brand really started to circulate in the public health world and the idea of branding a local public health department. So can you talk a little bit about that, your experience with that? I think that it's going to be just a continuing challenge for public health. It is so important because nobody knows what public health is unless until there's an emergency. And that's probably the way it should be that things are working. And a lot of that's because of public health. I think we need good branding because we need for people who are in public health to be able to talk about their work in a compelling and coherent and inspiring way. One challenge is that public health is so many things. It encompasses housing, it encompasses racial justice, it encompasses environmental health. It's really kind of the sum total of so many things. And so how you communicate that, you know, in a coherent brand, I think is very challenging. Stacey, do you have any advice for leaders or those running or operating, working in those different issue area domains, or someone who might be working in housing and, and is thinking about housing, but maybe not thinking about it through your public health lens? What should people who aren't thinking this way start to do? Or do you have any advice about how to maybe adapt any mindsets or tools that are maybe just second nature or, or you lead with in, in your field? How can people start on that public health mind frame or journey? You know, a lot of it I think is about education and learning more about public health. And if a person who is working around housing or working around healthy food or food insecurity or working for a housing authority actually sees themselves as a public health practitioner, putting that hat on can help them think a little bit differently about some of their programs. One thing that public health is about is prevention. 
So a lot of people who are doing kind of direct service are um, doing interventions. So they're trying to fix something. Um, they're trying to give vouchers or change this about vegetable markets and availability in, in food deserts or something like that. And those are all excellent in and of themselves, but you could also layer on that. What are you also preventing by doing that? What you are doing in addressing a food desert, for example, and creating a community garden in this vacant lot, it's an investment and that's a prevention strategy. It's an education strategy. It's a social connectedness strategy. So what are the elements that that intervention also creates as a prevention strategy? In public health, we talk a lot about population health, often through policy approaches or systems approaches. I think people who are actually doing great public health work, but they just don't know it, <laughs> if they were in a conversation with a couple of people about how does this work contribute to this system? How does it improve that system? One thing that would help a lot is just to get out of your usual circle and, you know, who else can you learn from? Find somebody who is not in your space, find out what they do and like, where is the synergy? Because I think what's beautiful about the, the housing people and the food people, the education people, like they are doing public health, but just, they just don't know it yet. So I, I would love to see more of those conversations. We work with so many in the social sector that can be forced into a silo of their issue, right? Poverty. We know poverty is not an issue. It's a collection of issues and it touches on so many others. And, and you just talked about public health in the same way. Are, are there any tips for communicators or advocates on how to talk about those intersections, how to communicate the idea that these are not silos, that in fact, to, to solve some of these challenges, we have to look at it across sector like you were just talking about? I think the most exciting work is the cross-sector work that you're talking about. I think what's attractive about silos is that it actually traps you into the idea that you can solve something like, okay, well, here I am in this spot and I have this one problem in front of me and I can do this and I can fix that. But that problem is nested within these very large and much more interrelated problems. I think partnerships are something we talk about a lot in public health. We talk a lot about collaboration in public health. Another theme that we like in public health is the strength-based approach, which is what do you already have that we can build on versus filling a gap? Each person brings with them a wealth of experience and knowledge, and we need to bring those people together. And we need to not worry that we're not going to solve the thing just in that moment. These problems are not going to be solved in one afternoon retreat. What's more important is that people have a chance to learn from each other because that's where the solutions can emerge. Personally, I find that the most fascinating thing is when people from different sectors come together. I think of it as this kind of interstitial space you have an idea of what you do. They have an idea of what they do, but there's this space in between you and you don't really know what's there. It kind of doesn't seem like there's anything there, but there is, you just don't know it yet. 
we talked a lot about the public health field or the public health community. Can you say what that is? Who's in it? When I think about the public health community, a big part of that community is governmental public health. So federal, state, local, governmental health, tribal, governmental public health. Then there's a lot of folks in the nonprofit space who are also doing public health. So food banks, housing authorities, community gardens, educational programs. Academia is also in the public health community, researchers, teachers, and, and so on. And there are people in the for-profit space as well who are doing public health. They are doing public health consulting. There are people doing regulatory work within industry who are doing public health. And there are a lot of people in media who I would consider public health folks. And I think that there are a lot of writers and communications people doing public health. So it's a very big space. And I think everyone assumes that it's all like doctors <laughs> and there are a lot of doctors doing public health work, but it's not a medical profession. It is a population health profession. So medicine is about treatment and curing people and public health is about preserving good health and preventing poor health as well. I am very curious, Stacey, what it's been like for you to witness the conversation around COVID from state to state, from federal to local. What a case study this is going to be in, you know, 10 years. It's hard to be in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a crisis, and to be doing the right and the wrong things, but not have the time to kind of step back and reflect. It's hard to do both at the same time. You really just need that retrospective. I think it's thrilling to see, you know, how rapid the vaccine development has been. The rollout is definitely problematic and especially around health equity issues. So you have some very exciting things around innovation and the power of like incredible innovative forces right now. And yet they're people in Chelsea who are last in line and the Latinx population is not getting vaccinated at nearly the rate of the white population. That shouldn't be happening now. Everybody knows better, but it should definitely not be happening in the future. I hope that there will be like this massive <laughs> step back and really collect all our learnings. I think one of the things that I worry about is that there's such a focus on the response but what is the investment right now on planning? We need to be ahead of it. It's hard because we're still in the middle of the response, essentially, but we need to stay ahead of it. So that's part of my concern, I think, right now. Stacey, I want to I wanna ask you about something that could really get in the way of getting ahead of it and probably something that drives you nuts as a professional in public health, and that is misinformation and disinformation. And at a time when we have all come to place a primacy on the value of accurate public information, um, particularly when it comes to health, how do you deal with disinformation and misinformation knowing the stakes are so high? I think that is a wonderful question. And that seems to be such fuel for so many fires right now. One of the things that this has made me reflect on is just 
sorry to go like so big, but just like, what is up with our education system? Why are we producing a whole population that doesn't have any critical thinking skills or any media literacy? That is just outrageous to me. So I think we have some big questions to ask about our education system. I think we really need to put equal or greater force behind facts and not take for granted that they will just speak for themselves. We need people really actively pushing them out there. And I think we have an obligation to really take a more active approach to identifying which facts need the most airtime and really putting together good strategies for getting those facts out there. It needs marketing and it needs marketing and communications. There's, there's no doubt about it. And then I think we need to be teaching young people media literacy and the power that they have. They're very excellent in their own communication skills. And we need to power that with facts and kind of a civic responsibility as well. Yeah, you know, when I think about young people today and social media, I really think about uh, storytelling and young people being able to tell their own stories freely. You know, they're, they're native users of these platforms. And I know you're a big proponent of storytelling as a way to spur people to action and like change. So how have you used storytelling in your work? How do you use it today? How are you instilling that in the students that you work with now? This is definitely a soft spot for me. I, I care a lot about storytelling. In my current work, it's actually a big part of what I do. And I think it's just because of my past experience in local public health and how important storytelling is. So my work is essentially getting students out of the classroom, right? So go do something. <laughs> that's, my, that's my job. <laughs> so you've learned all this great stuff, now go do something. Um, but then if you go do something awesome, you need to tell people about it. So it is not enough to just do great work. I think you have two obligations. One is to feed back to the people that you were serving. What did you learn from them? That is the shared success. So you should be sharing back the story and your learnings with people that you are hopefully serving and spurring further dialogue. And then on the other side, dissemination to your peers and people that can learn from you. So hopefully you've learned something that you can share and you've done something great that you can share. So I think that's the big obligation with storytelling, at least in, in public health. We do poster events and big, big events to really teach students that it's important to be telling a story in a compelling and concise way with just a couple of key messages. Like, what do you want your peers to learn from you? And they, they do a great job, but I've also come to understand that it is a skill that you, of course, you need to develop, which you all know, but if you don't prioritize it, it's not a skill that people will develop. So you really need to make it part of your work that you're going to go tell your story um, so that somebody else can use it. And what I think is always exciting in the storytelling piece is what somebody does with your story. So you have your own experience, you tell your story, but the person that you shared it with, they will take it in in their own context. And if it sparks an idea, it will take on its own form when they then implement something. How are you using creativity in your work now? Like, have you seen different creative approaches, whether it's COVID or just in the public health field in general? Why is it 
is important to you and your work? <laughs> I love that question. I, I think a lot of people don't really think public health is a particularly creative field. Personally, I think that there is so much room for creativity and, and a need for creativity and including art and music performance, and other creative forces. If you ask an artist to help with a public health issue, they will come up with some of the most powerful concepts, deliveries, inspirations, things that you would never think of. Art and creativity is just that very human piece. That's, that's what inspires people. It's what engages people. I think that the more creativity there is in public health, it just has a better opportunity for engaging more and different people. You always want more and different people. And then if you're trying to reach different populations and different cultures, creativity is a natural path in because it really helps people identify with the problem and with the solution. Thanks again to Stacey King for joining us for this episode of Design for Disruption, and thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Hairpin's work with mission-driven organizations and how they're meeting this moment of disruption, you can check out designfordisruption.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a Hairpin production.